Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about Israel's resurgence, Congo joining the East African community, and the disunity of NATO. All that and more, coming up. Alright, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, Greek farmers have inspired by the events in Canada, the Great Honkening, or the uh, the Freedom Convoy. Greek farmers have threatened to assemble their own Freedom Convoy, except for them, the target isn't necessarily COVID restrictions, although it could evolve into that. For them, the target is the excessive fuel prices in the country. As in Greece, they pay about 1.6 euros a liter, and the EU average is 70 cents a liter. So, they're paying just about, actually more than double the average price in EU for gas. So, maybe they'll, maybe they'll try to get a pipeline of their own from Russia, or Turkey, or someone. I mean, there's plenty of countries around them that they could have a pipeline built to them, uh, so, uh, but I guess that's more of a mid-to-long-term project, not necessarily a short-term solution. Don't exactly know what the short-term solution is going to be. Maybe there's some sort of regulations, maybe there's some sort of tax that can be removed. Simple things like that that could probably be done in the short term to bring the prices down, and then you compound that with, say, a pipeline or two to really bring the price down. That could be a solution, but we'll see how if the Greek government moves forward with something like that. Across the pond of the Mediterranean in Egypt, they, after brokering a truce between Israel and the Hamas branch in Gaza, uh, Egypt is now sending construction teams to clear rubble and build new apartment complexes in Gaza. So there's a uh, not necessarily a peace deal, but there's a truce between Israel and the Palestinians in Gaza. And Egypt is moving in, they're expanding their influence in the process, and rebuilding Gaza. So that's good for the Palestinians, and also good for the Israelis. Because it was unclear that they were going to be able to settle this issue by themselves anytime soon. And they have, they've really taken advantage of this. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but we'll move on to the U.S., who has denounced North Korea for reported missile tests, which they've been redoing up more and more recently. Um, one, uh, one of those missile tests, I believe, was even hypersonic. And the, the thing I raised about that was if North Korea has hypersonic missiles uh, and the United States doesn't, we have issues, then maybe we need to take a look at ourselves in the mirror before we go criticizing North Korea because if they have hypersonic missiles and you know we don't that's 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 a very that's not a good look that is not a good look at all but uh I guess I I guess congratulations to North Korea for one-upping the U.S. on that one but hey the U.S. is not happy about it so we're 
denouncing them for their missile tests. Meanwhile, Afghanistan is denouncing us uh, as they have been protesting for the U.S. to release the frozen assets. Now, my stance is it's their money and let them have it. So, I mean, that's my stance. My government stance is the exact opposite, which is don't give them the money. So, we'll see if something comes of this. The smart thing to do, in my opinion, would be to exchange these funds for American citizens. So, give them the money that's already theirs, all right, just stored in the U.S., give them their funds in exchange for our citizens, and then we go our separate ways. That does not seem to be on the agenda for the Biden administration, and at this point, I'm not even entirely sure if the citizens that are still there, the thousands of them, thousands of U.S. citizens that are still in Afghanistan, uh, it's not entirely sure to me if they are even a priority right now. It seems the current administration is more concerned about the border security of Ukraine and trying to start a war with Russia than they are with bringing our citizens home. So, um, we'll see what comes of this. That's my proposal as a solution to this, you know. But, uh, we'll see what happens, because I'm not the one in charge here. Russia, speaking of them, Russia has conducted naval drills in the Black Sea uh, amidst these rising tensions. They've been doing more and more drills lately uh, as a show of we could fight you back, but the drills have had sort of an inverse effect, at least in the minds of the policymakers in Washington and London, who view these drills as provocative. But NATO drills on the border with Russia are not provocative. There's a whole load of hypocrisy here that only brings us closer to conflict. And so far, Russia's still on the right here because it's their border, not America's border, not Britain's border. And we'll we'll get into how the rest of NATO is sort of responding to this in a minute as well. Uh, Not necessarily the Russian drills, but sort of the general situation regarding Ukraine and the war scare that's being jumped up over it. We'll get into that later. Uh, but in Ukraine, the U.S. Embassy staff has, the what's left of them anyway, they've been moved to Lviv, uh, that's L-V-I-V, which is a city in western Ukraine. This is like way over there, like nowhere close to the capital or the eastern parts of Ukraine. And they've been moved there. There's even been a statement given by the Biden administration saying that they will not undergo maneuvers to get citizens out in the event of a conflict in Ukraine, as in an escalation of the pre-existing conflict or a straight-up Russian invasion. So, yet again, it seems like American citizens are being sidelined for some other foreign policy. Now, what could be more important to an American administration than American citizens is beyond me. But I guess that's the the new norm now where we just leave citizens in countries where they don't want to be uh, every time we pull the military out of somewhere instead of, you know, taking them with us, you know, going back home. 
But we, we can put we can put thousands of Af- Afghans, we can put thousands of Afghanis on planes and bring them to America, but we can't bring our citizens back. That is absolutely incredible to me. But uh, we'll see how things go. If you can't tell, I'm greatly disapprove of our current foreign policy and our foreign. Uh, apparently, I also disapprove of our foreign policy goals and standards. Because it seems to me like our priorities are all the way out of whack. Uh, that's the U.S. Embassy staff being moved to Western Ukraine in Libya. Something interesting has happened, which has fueled uh, my prediction, or at least my faith in my prediction, that the situation there may or may not end well. And I'm looking towards not ending well. Because the Libyan House of Representatives, which is, um, they assemble in the east of the country. They have appointed a new prime minister, Fatih Bashaga. Um, they've done this in response to the government deliberately delaying the elections indefinitely. And we talked about that. I talked about uh, the various lead-ups uh, there were multiple of them to these elections. How I thought that the election results, unless everybody agreed to them, was going to end in tragedy. Well, now, with no election result, we have another political crisis. Which is that now there's two prime ministers. How are there two, you say? Well, the current slash previous prime minister, uh, Abdulhamid Dibaya. Uh, Debeba, there we go. Abdulhamid Debeba, who's the previous and current, technically current prime minister, hasn't left. He hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, the House of Representatives in Libya, who appointed Fatih Bashaga, uh, did not consult him about this or the rest of the government about this. And Abdulhamid has stated he will only concede power to an elected government, but the elections have been postponed indefinitely, which means he's he's not going to be conceding power. So now we have two prime ministers, one who is, as far as we know, been put into place by people who are pro-election, and one who's sticking around under the governance of people who have deliberately delayed the election. So we already have some irreconcilable divisions in this government, this temporary makeshift government, which threatens to reignite the civil war that's been somewhat on pause. Somewhat on pause. And we'll see where things go from here because there there can only be, I mean, far be it from me, to tell you how a parliamentary system works exactly, because where I come from, we have a Congress and a president, and those are two separate branches. Well, the legislative and the executive, but uh, <coughs> from what I understand of this, this uh, how you say, parliamentary system, from what I understand, there, there can only be a one prime minister. So... One plus one equals two. I think having two prime ministers is going to be a problem for a country that's already technically in a civil war right now. I don't see this ending well, but hey, at least the foreign powers 
who've involved themselves in this civil war can uh, get back to business as usual. That means Turkey, that means France, that probably is going to mean America, given the various attempts at rebuilding America's image through military interventions around the world. Right now it's Ukraine, but maybe having a distraction in Libya will give them an off-ramp to step back from Ukraine. It's going to mean Italy, it's going to mean Britain, and it'll probably mean Egypt as well. And hell, it might even mean Morocco and Algeria these days. So, it seems like Libya is slowly, but surely, and by slowly, I think it's a bit more rapidly than that. They're just descending. Not necessarily slowly, not necessarily quickly, but they are descending back into a civil war. Because it was only a month ago, uh, not even a month ago, that those elections were postponed indefinitely. So, we have... In Libya, a problem. And we'll see what happens with that problem. I assume that that problem will become a bigger problem, which is civil war. And I believe Turkey is likely to be the big winner in it, but civil wars are messy, so we'll really just have to wait and see. Or maybe, maybe they'll come to the agreement. Maybe this will force the issue of an election and the old government on under Abdulhamid will be forced to have those elections instead of indefinitely delaying them. So, maybe something good will come out of this. Who knows? We'll just have to wait and see. And that's all we can do. But, that is the rapid fire news, and we'll get into the meat of the episode in just a moment. Alright, time to get into the meat. And we're going to start by talking about Israel's resurgence. It's been quite a Quite a rapid and stunning one. Israel recently has signed a major arms deal with Morocco. The deal, worth $500 million, will allow Morocco to acquire Barak Air and Missile Defense Systems, which will be produced by Israeli Aerospace Industries, or IAI. This can be seen as a direct fruit of the Abraham Accords, which facilitated the normalization of relations between Morocco and Israel. So, Morocco is now procuring weapons from Israel almost immediately after this ceasefire between Israel and Gaza. So Israel's back. Uh, they're able to play in the arena again. They they're not busy killing. <laughs> they're not busy killing people uh, within their own territory. Technically, as Palestine exists within Israel, uh, at least within that general territory, and well, no one else is allowed in without Israeli uh, say-so, so effectively, even though Palestine is technically its own country, they are, in effect, a sort of autonomous province within Israel. That's sort of the, that's sort of what they are. But, um, Israel... Now, with this truce between them and the Hamas group in Gaza, they've been able to go abroad again for the first time in a while. They've secured this arms deal with Morocco. And this deal that I should, um, I'll also say, this deal, has likely tipped the regional power scales in Moroccan favor against Algeria. Morocco and Algeria broke off diplomatic relations 
and have begun buying up weapons like crazy. So Morocco has secured a deal with Israel, and it'll be interesting to see how Algeria responds to this, because uh, I don't imagine they'll just sit there and go, oh, look at that, the Moroccans are getting new weapons from Israel. Oh, maybe. I mean, we're, we're perfectly fine with the weapons we have, so we're just going to sit here and uh, watch. I don't, I don't think that's what Algeria is going to do. I think they're going to f- try to find their own foreign backer uh, to supply them with weapons if they don't start manufacturing their own locally, which is also a possible route to bypass supply chain issues and to create a stronger domestic economy rather than having your arms industry be a detriment to your economy because Morocco buying weapons is great for the Israeli economy but buying weapons is not necessarily great for the Moroccan economy producing weapons however would be a better stimulus to your own local domestic economy so that is the path that uh, Algeria can go down since both of them have committed to this geostrategic rivalry. So that is a path that Algeria could choose, but we'll see if they choose it. It's more likely that they'll try to procure weapons from foreign backers, as those weapons are likely to be more reliable, and it's quicker. You can just buy them, and they'll be sent to you. So that's probably what I imagine Algeria is going to do. And they might look to France to get it. So, I mean, we'll, we'll just have to see. We'll just have to see. Uh, the, the resurgence of this rivalry is definitely something that has sparked great interest in this part of Africa. At least for me, it has. So to see Israel and, and Morocco coming together as well makes it even more interesting. Uh, uh, yes, Israel. Uh, not just not just has uh, looked to Morocco for deals, but their prime minister is also currently set to visit Bahrain. So we'll see what they do in Bahrain. I believe they're going today. And if not today, it'll definitely be sometime this week. So I might be able to do a, like, a update on it next week when I do my next ep- episode. But the takeaway from all this is that Israel has wasted no time in putting itself back on the map after being bogged down fighting Palestinians for months. And I've said it multiple times, fighting with Palestine just left this incredible vacuum of power to be filled by Iran primarily. Israel being essentially taken offline with regards to the regional geopolitics has enabled peace and quiet for Israel, not Israel, for Iran to expand its influence and for Arabia to pursue its reconciliation with Iran without getting any sort of lip from Israel. So the Israel has come out from their, well, internal Vietnam, I guess, which was also destroying their image in the Middle East, which was also being used against them by countries, not just Iran, but by Turkey and Egypt, most notably. Iran was using uh, the conflict to fire missiles at Israel. They were, you saw allies of Iran in Jordan and in Syria 
firing missiles across the border into Israel. So you had, for the first time in a while, Iran countering Israel, or going on the offensive in a, any meaningful way. Whereas before, the, you know, before the latest round of fighting with Palestine, it was always Israel taking the fight to Iran. But with the Palestinian fighting, Iran was able to sort of hit back for the first time in a while. And now, Israel has emerged from this round of fighting to a changed geostrategic environment. I mean, the Syrian civil war is still on its way out. Right? It's, it's not gone yet, but it's getting there, which means that window is closing. Iran has established itself firmly in Lebanon, or at least more firmly than any other power. So they, they're winning there. And then there's the Houthis in Yemen, who are also winning. It's all the conflicts that Israel could have used as proxy wars with Iran and the destabilization that enabled them to target Iran so directly, are closing. And great progress has been made in ending, or bringing these conflicts closer to an end, in these last few months that Israel's been fighting Palestine. But Israel, again, wasted no time. They're trying to talk to Bahrain. They've set up this deal with Morocco. Uh, and truth be told, I believe they're... They've begun trying to cultivate an alliance with Morocco, and they'll be securing a market for Israel's military hardware in the process. So Israel is making moves. All right, the moves they can make in the Middle East are much more limited than they used to be, and a direct attack on Iran probably isn't in the cards right now, like it used to be, where there were literally two men on motorcycles gunning down Iranian officials and then driving off into the sunset on some incredible action movie shit. I, you, you just couldn't make that up. That doesn't seem to be on the cards anymore. Uh, so Israel is now looking towards where they can make moves. And Morocco is a pretty decent choice. Take advantage of the Abraham Accords. So there's that. We'll see if they do anything with the UAE as well, because... I, if I'm not mistaken, the UAE also normalized relations with them. So, well, we'll see what Israel does. Uh, this is definitely... The, the truce with Hamas in Gaza is definitely a boon for them. As it finally frees their hand to interact with the environment outside of Israel. So, we'll see what they make of this changed situation that they find themselves in. That'll be very interesting to watch. And now, we'll get on to the next topic, which is about the Democratic Republic of Congo. Now, why are we talking about the DRC? Way over there in Africa. What's happening over there? Why, I'll tell you, lovely listener, the DRC whom I shall refer to as just Congo, as we won't be talking about the other one at all, which is the Republic of Congo, 
Congo has joined the East African Community, or EAC. Now, this is a community of multiple countries in East Africa, and it has the explicit goal of becoming a single federalized state on the continent of Africa. The other members of this community and eventual federation are Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, Uganda, South Sudan, and Burundi. Now, without Congo, the EAC combined held a population of 183 million people and had a landmass of 950,000 square miles. So, pretty big. No slouch. It would technically be the biggest country in Africa by itself. By itself, should they federalize immediately into a country, they would become, if I'm not mistaken, one, one of, if not the biggest country in Africa. But, with, Con- with the addition of Congo, the EAC gained an additional 92 million people, which brings the total up to just over 270 million. And Congo's inclusion also nearly doubles the size of this eventual federation. Because Congo has 900,000 square miles of land all by itself. So before, you had 183 million people and 950,000 square miles with the first six countries combined. With just the addition of Congo, you're adding 92 million people and doubling the landmass. So, for perspective, 270 million people puts them up there, right up there with Indonesia. And Indonesia is, for perspective, the fourth most populous country in the world, right after the United States. Indonesia has 273 million people. So, this union this uh, East African Federation eventually would have equal to or greater than population. And the United States has around 340 million people right now. So this would, when these countries come together and make this federation, they're going to be the fourth most populous country on the planet, just past Indonesia. And they're going to be huge. They're going to be, what what is that? Uh, one point eight million one point eight million square miles of land. Yeah, that's about it. So pretty big, very 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 big. However, the benefits of this addition to the federation, well, the community right now it's not federation yet, but the benefits of Congo's inclusion are also the land, the shape of the land, because. Due to the peculiar shape of Congo, uh, its shape, where it sort of juts outwards in a thin, narrow corridor towards the west, it gives the EAC access to the Atlantic Ocean via a direct east-west land corridor. Because, again, Congo has that narrow strip of land that goes outwards and reaches the coast. And it has a port there. It already has a major port there. There are already major ports in 
East Africa. So you have an East-West land corridor that can be exploited. They have access to the two oceans, which means they have access to easy trade with all of the countries that have coastlines on these two oceans. And that's a lot of countries. That's an absolute staggering amount of countries. I'm looking at my map right now. That's all of Africa, all of Africa, essentially. They can do easy trade with almost every country on the continent, as most African countries have a coastline. Uh, so they can reach all of Africa. That's all the Middle East, minus Jordan. That's Iran, Pakistan, India. That's Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, uh, Australia. That's China, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Vietnam, Philippines, Thailand. That's all of South America, minus Bolivia and Paraguay. That's all of North America, minus nobody. You're talking easy trade access to Europe, uh, Western Europe, and courtesy of the Suez Canal, the East African parts of this community have already have east, easy access to the Mediterranean and the, the Eastern Mediterranean, and even the Black Sea. So having access to these two coastlines means having easy access to trade uh, from multiple directions. They aren't beholden to any one direction for the purposes of transportation costs they can move if they can move goods efficiently from coast to coast then they can take full advantage of trade without the hindrance of say having to sail your cargo ship around South Africa to get to say Brazil instead they can just send them on a road going from say Kenya or Tanzania through Uganda through Congo itself all the way to Congo's west coast the thin a very thin west coast but it's there and then you can sail your ship from that starting point and that's a pretty huge difference it also keeps you from being beholden to the whims of foreign powers in the event of hostilities because you can never you never know when some country just doesn't like you anymore or what'll kick off something like that but having that sort of strategic flexibility and sort of that depth and options really just options that's incredible for this community congo is an incredible addition to the east african community there's just no better way of putting it and that's just looking at the borders of Congo, looking at the population in the land. We haven't gotten to the fact that Congo is rich in minerals, minerals which are used in many modern devices, which, when linked up to infrastructure in the east, will enable these resources to be more easily traded with the high-tech economies of East Asia, which Congo already has a market in. But Congo, on its own, again, due to geography, they have to take their minerals, load them up on ships on their west coast, sail it down around South Africa, back up along the west coast of Africa, and then they sail it to Asia. But by joining this community, they can instead ship their minerals and valuable resources to the east coast.
just straight to the East Coast. And then they get onto ships from there. And then they go to Asia, where they'll be processed into microchips and semiconductors and eventually finished goods like phones, screens, and monitors. It's this not only is Congo a great addition to the East African community, but the East African community is great for Congo as well because it gives them access to that trade and it's it seems very mutually beneficial and that's probably why Congo signed on and probably why the EAC accepted them to begin with because it's mutually beneficial to an incredible degree for both of these entities now again uh, there's some issues both of the previously mentioned advantages which is the access to the two coastlines of the Atlantic and the Indian Oceans as well as uh, the increase in population which eventually will mean a larger domestic market for produced goods and the access to trade trade in say North the Americas easy trade for the Americas in the case of East Africa and easy trade to Asia in the case of Congo even with both of those two advantages in order to take advantage of those it's gonna require say a railroad or two until fruit is able to be you know extracted from them. until fruit bears it's gonna take railroads for fruit to bear from those two incredible advantages of this merger but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a problem. It means there's an issue that needs to be overcome, but that issue may not sit there for a, a hundred years or so or a couple decades unaddressed because the revenues from existing trade, because it's not like the East African community and Congo just popped up and they don't have anything going for them. They already have their own trade. They already have their own trade partners and trade agreements. It's just internally that they're sort of enabling movement of people and goods by Congo joining the community. And the revenue from existing trade, the savings on transportation costs from moving goods from Congo through the eastern states of the community, even without the necessary infrastructure investment just enabling people to walk or well walk for some people but say drive your motorcycle or your truck loaded up with your goods just drive to the east coast before loading it up on a ship that freedom of movement itself is going to create cost savings because some things in congo do go from congo across the border into the East African states before they go to Asia. So by getting rid of that barrier, you're going to save on transportation costs. And once you do that, you have savings that's going to help fund infrastructure. The in, you combine that then with investment money from China's Belt and Road, uh, and in time, in time, you're going to provide for the construction of the necessary infrastructure to take full advantage of those resources in Congo. 
and to take full advantage of the free movement of peoples between these areas so that you can really create not just a powerful export economy, but in time, a powerful domestic consumer economy and even probably manufacturing of some kind. If you're able to, if you're really able to get the infrastructure up and running, roads and railroads and maybe even a high-speed rail from the west coast to the east coast, now that'll be something to behold. And that'll really save on transportation costs, uh, moving things via high-speed rail from the port in on the two coastlines in just hours. You can move stuff from in hours, and that'll really change the game if something like that were to be built. But not counting high-speed rails, just roads and regular railroads would really create something special in the heart of Congo that can be mutually beneficial for everyone. It's just, uh, it's a very, very interesting story, and it's a very good story. It's, like I said, Congo is a great addition to the East African community, and the East African community has great benefits to Congo. It's just, the two go together very nicely. But, but, it's not all hunky-dory, as there is an issue that does present itself that I've uh, taken note of, which is the language barrier. Now, this language barrier exists because Congo was a Belgian colony, and all of the East African states of the community uh, were most recently, before the end of the colonial era, they were most recently under British occupation, so they all had English as a common language that they can use between each other. Congo does not have English as a recognized official language of the country. So that could definitely get in the way of this glorious future that I have laid out to you that could potentially become of this East African uh, community. Because you remember the size and scale of Congo that I brought up earlier, where they have 92 million people, which is essentially increasing the population of the community by 50% because they had 183 million before. Uh, factor in that Congo is doubling the landmass of this union because Congo has basically the same amount of land as the community had before it. So this incredible addition comes with this caveat. There's a language barrier, and due to the numbers, you have half your country and a third of your population that do not speak this language. Uh, this language being English. So either you teach them to speak English for the purposes of cohesion within this community, or you're going to need ambassadors at every point of the way. Now, the practical thing to do would be for Congo to learn English, but people like their language and generally don't like having to change. But we'll see if we'll see if Congo approaches that issue with an open mind. Because them 
they have the power to make this incredibly easy or incredibly difficult. They can choose to teach English as sort of a, a second language in most of their communities, which will enable them to better integrate and better interact with their new partners in the East African community. Or they could double down on their traditions of the languages that they already speak, and that'll create incredible problems for the community. It'll create a challenge, nonetheless. So we'll see what becomes of this. But regardless of language barriers, I still believe that this uh, inclusion of Congo in the East African community is a very good one. Uh, again, the language could get in the way of this of the East African community, as remember, in the end, the community has the ultimate goal of becoming a single country, and with half your country, a third of your population speaking a different language, might be a problem, but I do not believe it to be an impossible problem to solve, but definitely something to think about moving forward. Very astonished and impressed by that story, and happy that I came across it. And now, we'll move on to the other part of today's episode, which is the disunity of NATO. And we'll start with Slovakia. Now, the Slovakian government signed on to a defense agreement with the United States, which enabled America to use air bases in Slovakia essentially unilaterally. So they wouldn't necessarily need to consult the Slovakian government about putting planes there and troops there. Slovakia citizens are anywhere from mixed to upset about this move. Why? Because now Slovakia, who's really, really, really been really, really quiet about the whole Ukraine issue, is now essentially being shuffled up to the front line of the NATO spat with Russia. And fears of becoming a proxy of the Ukraine conflict have been compounded when in uh, I almost can <laughs> I was I almost couldn't believe I saw this but the fears of becoming a proxy for this Ukraine conflict had to have been compounded when MPs members of parliament in the country waved the Ukrainian flag in front of the Slovakian one which naturally and reasonably I would add upset people and i'll say this if any one of the niggas in congress pulled that same stunt in the house or the senate and put ukraine's flag in front of the american flag ah uh, they'd immediately wake they goodness they'd immediately make their way to the tippy top of the shit list uh for this podcast and that would be without my open and unapologetic opposition to America even being involved in Europe, let alone Ukraine's war with themselves, let alone a war between Ukraine and Russia, without my opposition, they'd make their way to the top of the shit list. With my opposition, well, I pray they get voted out. That's about as much as I can do. Most of these people are beyond my jurisdiction. Oh, how a shame. Oh, well, lucky them, I guess. If I had my way, they'd all be either in jail or 
in jail. <laughs> but anyway, um, long story short, I do not know what Slovakia's government was thinking when they did this, but Slovakians were not happy about that. They were not happy about the recent developments, which was the U.S. being able to take over air, air bases, essentially. And Slovakians really don't want to be involved in this Ukraine mess. And that, I feel, reflects the larger sentiment regarding the conflict, or not necessarily the conflict, because I, I, I mean, I should say conflict, but at the same time, I shouldn't. As Ukraine is at war with the rebels, but, you know, in all, if these past few months of the war scare have shown me anything, it's that not a single one of the people pushing for this um, war between Ukraine and Russia, not a single one of the people who have, you know, pushed the propaganda, not a single one of them who have listed off the talking points of, oh, there's 100,000 Russian troops on the border. Oh, Russia's about to invade Ukraine. Oh, Putin really wants this. None of those people in these past, what, three, almost four months now, none of them, and this is incredible, none of them have so much as mentioned the rebels in the Donbass. Not a single one of them. People talk about, oh, if there's a war in Ukraine, there's already a war in Ukraine. And I know, I know, I bring this up every time I talk about Ukraine. But just as a point of reflection, not, not me ranting this time, but as a point of reflection, that is incredible that no one who is pushing this war scare has so much as mentioned those rebels. Because if you don't, understand that Ukraine is currently in a civil war right now every assumption you base around Ukraine and Russia is going to be wrong you're going to you're going to miss the context Russia does not invade Ukraine unless Ukraine attacks the rebels but if you don't even acknowledge the rebels you're going to miss the fact that Ukraine will have instigated their own destruction when the Russian tanks come rolling into Kiev it's incredible. And there's, again, it's been going on for three, four months, this war scare. Plenty of time for people in various news outlets and various people in positions of military and, uh, and you know, NATO positions. And, uh, goodness, I'm blinking. Advisory, people in advisory positions, national security advisors, head of security of this and Four months, almost four months, and none of them have come across this pretty crucial piece of context. Like, again, I don't want to rant about it. I'll save the ranting for my previous episodes. But it's really just incredible. Like, I know for a fact that they know what I know. There's no way they don't. And the same thing goes for Afghanistan. I know for a fact they knew what I knew, which was that the Taliban was going to win. And they waited until the last minute to pull the troops out and left thousands of citizens behind. 
but had no problems bringing thousands of Afghanis here. I mean, just forget our citizens, I guess. So I know that they know what I know because they have more to work with than I do. There's no way they don't see Ukraine is in a civil war right now. And that the only way Russia invades Ukraine is if either A, Ukraine attacks the rebels, B, Ukraine joins NATO, or C, NATO puts troops in Ukraine anyway without them joining. Those are the three ways this goes. Russia doesn't just pop up one day and goes, well, we're just going to attack Ukraine. That doesn't make any sense. So, <coughs> I'll digress. I just, I just felt that was, excuse me, I just thought that was very interesting that I, and I, I, I just now realized that I didn't have this in my notes when I was preparing the episode, but it's really incredible that none of them have come across this. I, I, I'll leave it at that. I won't repeat it too much. It's just there. I'll just leave that on the table. But it seems to me that this rabid push, and I do mean rabid, foaming at the mouth, this push to expand NATO through the addition of Ukraine seems to be actually tearing NATO apart. I mean, the conflict has grown toxic to NATO members, no least in Slovakia, let alone Romania, Germany, France, Germany and France, who sat down and spoke with Putin to de-escalate the situation. It's, It's toxic in Italy. Spain and Portugal are just sitting there on the, in the corner of Europe pretending that they're not even a part of NATO. Greece wants nothing to do with this. Uh, the Baltics don't want anything to do with this. Romania doesn't want anything to do with this. Croatia has openly stated that they won't send troops. They want. They obviously want nothing to do with this. Poland is much more silent about this because they... They kind of instigated this with their provocations against Belarus. And I say provocations not because I'm taking the Belarusian side on this, but just as an observer looking from the outside in, they instigated the conflict between them and Belarus by getting themselves involved in Belarus's election, which is just not your place. They're the aggressor. They started that beef. They're therefore the ones provoc. They're the ones being provocative. And Poland's been much more quiet on the issue because of they know that they are in a provocative role. They don't get to say, "Oh, let's de-escalate now." They they sort of have to sit in that and wallow in it. But no one in NATO wants this, and it's tearing them apart. Is I mean, what more can I say? If NATO members are openly stating that they will not send troops to defend other NATO members, and they aren't talking about Ukraine, they're talking actually about actual NATO members, they won't send troops to defend them if there's a war with Russia, then that means you're not you're deliberately not going to honor Article 5 of NATO, which is the mutual defense clause where it, an attack on one is an attack on all, if you're not going to honor that clause, the alliance is dead. If that clause is not honored, there is no NATO alliance. 
It just doesn't exist unless everyone honors that one specific one. That is the most important clause with respects to NATO being a military alliance, which is what it's supposed to be. But if people aren't going to honor that part of the agreement, then there's there's no alliance. <clears throat> and if we've gotten to the point where NATO members are openly stating that they will not honor Article 5, then what you essentially have is NATO members essentially saying they are no longer a part of NATO. Because that's what that means. That's what that means. You're not a part of this alliance anymore if you're not going to honor it. And can you blame them? I mean, they don't want a war with Russia. They don't win in a war with Russia. They know they won't win in a war with Russia. And in in worst case scenario, barring nuclear weapons, Europe is going to get absolutely devastated by war. And the United States is just going to walk across the ocean and fuck off. And Russia is going to be one Ukraine, one Belarus, and three Baltic states bigger than it was before. Europe doesn't win in a war with Russia. Russia wins in a war with Russia. And it is only Russia that wins. In their eyes, I guess Belarus technically wins too. They're in a union state with Russia, so Russia's their ally. They win too. China wins, because they're going to walk in. They're going to be like, oh, look, your country's destroyed. Maybe you need some infrastructure. Why don't you sign here, 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 and here? Oh, thank you for doing business with China. Welcome to the Belt and Road. China's going to win if there's a war in Europe. Russia's going to win if there's a war in Europe. Belarus wins. You know who doesn't win? NATO. Germany, France, Italy, Slovakia, Poland. The Baltics, who will be annexed. Finland, who may or may not get annexed too, if they if they go all the way with this idea that they're floating of joining NATO. NATO and Western and Central Europe do not win. Ukraine certainly does not win, but Russia will. And many Ukraine many Ukrainians know this. Uh, they're, I believe, one of their admirals, one of the, <coughs> excuse me, one of their captain, it was a captain, there it is, uh, he's openly stated, he was on the BBC, he said Ukraine was willing to be flexible over its goal to join the Atlantic Alliance, he's talking about NATO, uh, flexible over its goal to join the Atlantic Alliance, a move Russian President Vladimir Putin said would be a trigger for war. And this was Vadim Pristaiko, who was the captain that I told that I was speaking about. And he put that statement in the context of Ukraine being threatened and blackmailed by Russia. But even without threats and blackmail, he understands that when Russia says Ukraine joining NATO is a red line and that they will invade if you do that, he understands what that means. It means that if NATO brings Ukraine into it, Ukraine dies. He understands this. So even though he's overtly anti-Russian in his stance, in his position, he understands that 
irrespectively of how he feels about Russia, he has he has to take into account what Russia's going to do. And what Russia's going to do is they're going to invade if Ukraine joins NATO. They won't invade if Ukraine doesn't, but they will if Ukraine does. So if that's your choice, you're not going to join NATO. You're going to be flexible over that goal. And he's not the only one to express concerns. I mean, uh, there was the there was the ambassador, Ukraine's ambassador to Britain, was even floating the idea of Ukraine abandoning its attempt to join NATO if it meant avoiding war with Russia. Oh, oh, my my mistake. This was not the captain that I spoke of. Uh, Vadim Pristaiko was uh, Ukraine's ambassador. I'm I read my notes wrong. So he was the ambassador, Vadim Pristaiko, who said Ukraine would be flexible in its goal. He was the one floating the idea of Ukraine just straight up abandoning their attempt to join NATO. And there was a captain of the Ukrainian Navy who said that if there was a war with Russia, they would lose. And given that when Russia took over Crimea, they also annexed basically all of Ukraine's Navy in the process... I wholeheartedly believe that. And Russia, since they've been doing these drills in the Black Sea, they've essentially doubled the size of their naval force in the Black Sea. From 7 to about 13 ships, where Ukraine doesn't exactly have much to work with, period. So, it's obvious where he's coming from when he says that they would lose. But, all in all, coming back to NATO... None of them want this. They just don't want it. As a matter of fact, they're increasingly hostile toward the idea. So the harder and harder the U.S. and the U.K. push for this, the more countries within NATO are going to start to look away from NATO for their security, as it's being viewed increasingly as a liability. Because that's what it's becoming in this crisis. It's becoming a liability. Being a part of NATO means getting into wars that other members of NATO instigated that you have nothing to do with. So, this stunning shift, this stunning turn of events, where NATO was supposed to be a sort of means of keeping Europe from fighting each other, as a means of protecting countries under its yoke, it has become, instead of a great military asset where you're, you have all the great powers of Europe in one military alliance with one another, minus Russia, of course, you go from that to, okay, well, there's a war over Ukraine, but that what does that have to do with me? So that not only is that an incredible shift in the, well, how would you put that? A shift in... The viable, the viability of NATO going from an asset to a liability, but it also represents a shift in the mentality because people do things more or less in accordance to what they already believe. So if people go from thinking of NATO as an asset to thinking of it as a liability, then what this situation also reflects is that people on the ground level do not see the value of NATO 
uh, or at the very least they increasingly see its value as being outweighed by it as a liability getting into someone else's war which again you can't blame people for not wanting to do it's something that i am known for you know and i live in a country that is 6000 miles away from the nearest point of ukraine so you can imagine how someone in europe would feel getting dragged into this war should it happen a war being pushed by the us and uk countries who are not even on the european continent and i guess that's the real kicker the uk has the english channel between them and any mess in europe and the united states has an ocean between us and europe we have insulation we will be the most minimally affected by this conflict and yet it is these two countries who are pushing the hardest for this and it is ultimately the us and uk not russia who are dismantling nato before our very eyes and it'll be very interesting to see who specifically certain countries turn to for their security will it be russia will it be france will it be some coalition of other major powers in europe or will countries look to just themselves very interesting we'll see if nato survives the crisis that it created for itself or if it doesn't so very very interesting things for today but alas that is all i have for today I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast, The World is Changing. We're looking at the end of one union, NATO, and the, the rising star of another, the East African community. And these are some pretty big changes, very, very big changes that I didn't expect to see back to back and so soon. Oh, my goodness. But we'll watch these changes and others. We're going to have fun watching them together. Now, I've been your host, Hashan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, say Arvus.